Amen. Well, good morning, Living Stones. It is great to be with you today. I am going to remember today to dismiss our Kickstart Age kids, so our fourth and fifth graders. Look at that. Cheap applause. I love it. I, <laughs> our fourth and fifth graders, you guys head on out to the back. You guys are going to be going to the pit and enjoying uh, just a fun lesson and time together. So um, Meredith was absolutely right. We had an amazing time at the bonfire on Friday night, and I just want to thank everybody that came out and was a part of that. It really, I mean, it was the perfect fall night uh, for it, just kind of, you know, roasting s'mores and hot dogs around the fire and watching and listening to the kids just tearing around and having a great time. It was, it was awesome, and I'm just thankful for our, uh, our church family. So um, last Sunday, we started a new series in the book of James, and, uh, I, and I, 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 book of James has always been one of my favorite books uh, to read. It was written by Jesus's half-brother, James, and, and as I mentioned last Sunday, it is one of the most practical books in, in the Bible. It, it really is kind of like one of, one of those books where, where you read it, and, and it kind of is, I, I want to say, just offers wisdom on how do we faithfully live out this life of faith that, that we have, um, that, that we're endeavoring to do. And, and in reading, you know, in, in reading the book of James, it, it's one of those books that often my, my toes start to hurt a little bit after reading it because they're getting stepped on quite a bit by, by what James has to say because it makes me examine and think about some things in my own life, things that, that, that I have going on. And, and as we began last week in the first chapter, James James instructs us about how do we walk through trials and temptations? How, how do we faithfully walk through and deal with the trials and temptations of life that we all face, that we all encounter, and that we all deal with? And so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message. But today we're going to begin by looking at chapter 2. And so I want to start off our time, and it's just a, 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 just a very basic question I want to ask. Like, has anybody ever been judged before or felt like they've been judged in one way or another? Yeah, like, we, we, all, we all have. Like, we've all been on the receiving end of being judged, and, and we don't like it. We don't, we, don't like how, we don't like how it feels. You know, like, it, it's just something that, you know, like, we get sized up in the moment and, and we're put into a box or we're put into a category, and, and none, of, none of us like that at all. Yet it's something that even though we don't like it, Every one of us have done that same thing to others, where we've judged and, and sized up somebody and kind of made a, a judgment call or determination about them in one way or another. And another question I, I would ask is, how many of you have ever been the favorite before? Maybe the favorite child in your family, or maybe you were the teacher's pet. I, I'm, I'm guessing, like, for me, like, I despised the teacher's pet and, you know, didn't... Like, I'm, and, and I'll just... I'll just be honest, I don't mind admitting that Josiah is the favorite son in our family. <laughs> He's our only son, and so I can say that. I can't say that about any of my girls. Um, but, but like, I, I think we've all had experience with that, where, you know, like, thinking back of, about recess on the playground, and, you know, you're teams are being decided for either playing kickball or dodgeball or something like that, and we've all been there where we're not necessarily the first one picked or the second or the eighth one picked. Like, we're kind of picked towards the end of the line. I, like, I remember being there. Like, we, we, don't, we don't like being judged. We don't like people playing favorites. It, it bothers us when people do it. It bothers us when we feel like, all right, we're not a part of the in crowd, that, that there's, we're on the outside and everybody else is on 
the inside. And, and this is one of the big things that, that James begins talking about in chapter 2. And so I'm, I'm going to read to you the first nine verses. It, it's a little bit of a longer section, but, it, but it's all kind of one cohesive thought that James has. Um, and then we're going to kind of pick it apart and the ramifications of that. So in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there, or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives, by evil thoughts? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. We, we all know this one, the golden rule. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin, and you're guilty of breaking the law. Like, James is being pretty straightforward here. He, he, like, he's not pulling any punches and telling it like it is about what, what is it like when we show favoritism, when, when we are, are judging those who are around us. And, and in thinking about what James has to say about the, the consequences of judgment, of the, the consequences of, of favoritism, like I, I, it, it's obvious when, when we think about what are the consequences for those who we are judging or who we are discriminating against. But one of the things I want to kind of look at in this first part is what does it actually do to us? When we are judging somebody else, when we are showing favoritism to someone else, what does it do to us? And so uh, allow me just to share a point that I think James illustrates here. And, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Is that judgment creates pain and separation. Judgment creates pain and separation. Now, like I said, the effects of, of judgment, of favoritism, that, of what it does to those who are the victim of such treatment, like that, that's obvious. Like, we've all been on the receiving end of that. We all know what that's like and what it feels like. It creates pain for those who are being judged, for those that are being discriminated against. And it creates separation between us and somebody else. Like, I, I love the definition that Dr. Jim Richards uh, gives of judgment. He says, judgment is when you assume to know why someone did what they did or said what they said. And we can, so like it, it, using, using that as a, as, a, as a lens for us here, like we can look at a fact, we can look at something that happened, and we assume and we come to a conclusion about why that thing happened. I, I, know, I know there are no couples in here who ever have strife or disagreements in, in their marriage at all, but there's times that I've heard... Okay, I'll, this is live experience. All right. There, there are times that Angela wants me to do something. She asks me to do something, and I don't always respond well in those moments. I wish I could tell you I always do. But I don't always. <laughs> because there's times that I judge her motives and her intentions behind why she's asking that. 
You know, there, there's times where, where I just kind of jump to this conclusion. All right, she's just trying to be controlling. She's just trying to boss me around. She's just trying to tell me what to do. And, and so I'm assuming I know the motive and the reason behind why she's asking this, even if that assumption is anything but the truth. And, and what, what is the result of those judgments? When, when I jump to those conclusions, what are the natural results? It creates pain and separation. I, I've created pain in our relationship because when I'm making assumptions, when I'm making judgments like that, I guarantee you that I'm not going to respond well. And that's going to create pain and strife in our relationship. But I've also created separation between Angela and myself, someone that God has blessed me with, who who's God has put into my life to help me, to enrich my life, who's a blessing to me. Like I end up cutting my knees out from under me when I end up making judgments like that. It, it, because I'm making assumptions, it creates pain and separation. And this isn't just true in families and relationships, but think about it in, in regards to the church. That, that's who James is talking to. God put the body of Christ together, and, the, and we, we need one another. We need those who are different than us. We need people who are wealthy and people who are not. We need those who have walked in the faith for decades, and we need those who aren't even in the faith yet. We need those who seem like they have it all together and those whose lives seem like a total mess. Like, it, it, is, the, it is the diversity that makes the body of Christ so beautiful. It, it's diversity that makes the body of Christ just set such a, an amazing picture of what the kingdom of God is all about, that we need one another. But when we judge the thoughts and the intents and the motives of those around us, when we look how someone is dressed, how someone talks, how someone smells, how much they give, what their kids are like, when, when we look at those things and we make judgment calls about them, it creates pain and separation. And neither of those are good. Neither of those are conducive to the body of Christ at all. And, and allow me just to share one of, one of my like, proudest moments of being your pastor. Like I, I've like, literally just, I think this week, surpassed like, the three-year mark that I've, that I've been here at, at Livingstone's Church. And, and about, I, I, well, you don't have to clap for that. I, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but not this past year, but the, the year before we had our, our Father's Day celebration, we were grilling out brats and hot dogs and, and everything out on, on the outside. And it was, it was just a great time uh, of just our, our church family gathering and enjoying a meal together. And there was, a, there was a couple that showed up on that day that they hadn't been here before. And, and they looked like, and I'm just being honest, I mean, they looked pretty rough. Like they had slept under a bridge the night before. Like he came on, it, like he was wearing just like a, a wife beater. She had on like this tank top and no bra on. And I mean, I mean, they just looked, they just looked tough. They looked, they looked rough. They didn't look the best. They didn't smell the best. But let me tell you, church, like you shined on that day. Like it, it was, it was amazing to see the way that our church smiled and talked and interacted and served that couple that morning. I, I don't know that I've seen them back here since. But that doesn't matter. Like, it, it was such a beautiful thing to see our church going out of our way to serve those and, and not to show favoritism, but to truly be 
what James is talking about here, not, not showing favoritism, not judging, but I'm just going to love you because you're here in my presence right here in this moment. It, it was such a, an amazing thing. And, and Jesus talks so often about this very concept, about not judging, about, about not showing favoritism, about the way that we think about and interact with those around us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, Jesus said, he said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Like he, he, Jesus is saying, all right, instead of sitting here and pointing out all the faults in somebody else, instead of sitting here and, and assigning the, the uh, motive and intent behind the, the reason people are doing certain things, he said, all right, take, take an, uh, an attitude and a posture of, of humility instead. Take, take, look, take a look in the mirror first before you start pointing out what's going on in somebody else. And, and Jesus didn't just preach this, though. He demonstrated it, too. In John chapter 13, verse 12, says, it, this is talking about like at, at the Last Supper, when he had finished washing their feet, his disciples' feet, including Judas, the one who was going to betray him, the one that was going to cost Jesus his life. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, I think what Jesus is talking about here is, is less performative and more about the heart and the posture behind what it is that he's doing. There, there's nothing wrong about actually washing feet and foot washing. It's a, it's a beautiful, moving uh, experience. In, in fact, I, I, like I, I have three pictures I wanted to show you. The first one is of, of Pope Francis. And here he's washing and kissing the feet of a, a number of people at a... At a disabled facility or a, a handicapped facility. The, the next one, he was doing something very similar to some people who weren't even in the faith. He was washing the feet of some Muslims that had come and, and gathered. He shared a, a, another one here. He was washing the feet of prisoners, those, those who are in prison for, or for one reason or another. Like, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to observe and participate in. And, and, and thinking about it, if judgment and favoritism creates pain and separation, acts of humility like this creates healing and closeness. If when we judge, it creates pain and separation, acts of humility actually bring healing and closeness. And ultimately, that's what Jesus wants to use his church to bring into the world. Like, I, I've shared this quote before. I mean, it's probably one of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite definitions of humility. And C.S. Lewis wrote it where he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You know, you, you, demonstrating humility is not putting yourself down. It's not self-flagellating or, or anything like that. Humility is about thinking about yourself less and others and the needs of others more. That, that's what humility is all about. It, 
And then James actually, he, he almost pivots a little bit here. But, but one thing in, in the, the rest of chapter 2, but there, one thing I want to remind you, that there's a continuity that comes when, when we read through the books of the Bible. Like when James wrote this letter, there were no chapter breakdowns, there were no verse breakdowns. If you're reading your Bible often, there's like section headings. None of those were in there when these were originally written. And so what, what James is going to talk about next, it might seem like a different subject, but it's actually related to the first. I, like, I would encourage you as a discipline, sometimes, like, actually reading, like, an entire letter all the way through, because you can get almost a, a greater grasp and understanding of, of the, the continuous thought that the writer is, is sharing here. But the, like I said, the remainder of chapter 2 is a continuation of what James is saying at the very beginning here, about not showing favoritism, about not showing judgment. And, and it's a little bit of a longer section, so again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it with you, and then we're going to kind of pull it apart a little bit. James says in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? Or excuse me, I'm sorry, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead as well. Like last week when I was introducing this series on, on James, I talked about the, the Mars Climate Orbiter and how it crashed into, into the planet Mars because NASA engineers, they had failed to convert empirical, empirical units to metric units. And so while, while both Newtons and Pounds talk about the same thing, they're both talking about force, they were talking about the same thing in two different ways. And, and that's kind of what, what James is, is doing here when he's talking about our faith and our works, when he's talking about our faith and our actions. He's talking about the same thing, but he's doing so in two separate ways. And, and so we all have faith in things. We all, have, uh, we, all, we all have faith in something, and we express that with some kind of corresponding action. And so I, I want to just kind of pause for a second and ask, does anybody have, like, their checkbook with them? Does anybody have... Would somebody be willing to pull their, their checkbook out for me? And would here, in fact, I, I even have a pen. Would you, Susie, I, I'm, I'm, I see you over here, Susie. Susie, would, would you pull your checkbook out and make a check out to me? Sign, sign it and date it. Sign it and date it, believe the amount blank. Okay? What, what, will you do that for me? 
Susie, I knew I loved you. All right. I, let, I, I'm just kidding. You don't really have to do that. Now, but, <laughs> like, I was going to say, man, that's going to come in handy. If you guys want to find me, I'm going to be in Hawaii. So that, that's all. <laughs> but obviously, like, we don't go around handing out blank checks to people because we don't trust and have faith that they aren't going to do something with it that would cause us harm. Like, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised. Like, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. Su- Susie's a wonderful, generous woman. But, but like, th- think of it like this. If you have faith that the chair you're sitting in is going to hold you for the duration of the service, the corresponding action is that you're going to sit down in the chair. Like, if you have faith that the pilot who's flying the airplane that you're about to get on, that, that he's trained, he's sober, he's experienced, and he's going to get you to where you're going, you'll get on the plane. If, if you have faith that the bridge you're about to drive over, that the engineers knew what they were doing when they calculated the, the load limits and, and the, they, they designed the structure of the bridge, you're going you're gonna to go across it. And, and on our faith in things is expressed in some kind of corresponding action. Like our, our, our faith in our chair is demonstrated by us sitting down in it. Our faith in the pilot and the airplane is evidenced by us boarding the plane. Our faith, by, our faith in the bridge and the engineers that designed it is evidenced by us driving over the bridge. Like if we refused to sit down, if we didn't get on the plane, if we didn't go over the bridge, it would kind of demonstrate we don't really trust, we don't really believe in that seat, in that pilot or in that airplane or in that bridge. Like if... And, and that's what James is trying to say here, that if we have faith, if we really do trust God, it will be evidenced in, in how we live our lives, in, in the works that we do, that the actions that we exhibit. Now, I, I will say this, you know, James 2.17, if you can put that back up on the screen. He, you know, James said, in the same way that faith by itself, it is, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Now, this idea can flirt with and and even cross the line into legalism if we're not careful. You know, legalism says, all right, if you really have faith in God, if you really trust God, you're going to prove it by doing X, Y, Z. That's what legalism says. But that's not what James is is talking about here. He's not giving a list of things that, all right, if you do them, this proves that you're in the faith. That's not what James is saying. That's not biblical, nor is it helpful. What, what James is trying to say here is that, that our faith that we have, our faith that we uh, profess, that, that we have, it's going to have an impact in our everyday lives. And it's going to look different for every single one of us. Because our faith, it, it's, on a, it's on a continuum that has no end. We are all at different places on, on that continuum. And the things in my life that I do as a result of my faith, hopefully will continue to grow the longer I walk and the longer that I journey with God. The more I know Him, the more I trust Him. My actions are going to reflect that. But in verse 17, James says that our faith, if it's not accompanied by actions, our faith is, is dead. That, that doesn't, and, and so what he's saying there, I, I, like I want to make this crystal clear, that does not mean that our faith plus our actions is what saves us. Because that's not what James is saying at all. I, I don't have time to go into it, but, but Scripture is crystal clear on that. We cannot add anything to our faith that, w- that will save us and make us right with God. But what he is saying, the corresponding actions that we do in our lives are, are a result of the faith that we have. 
like sitting in the chair, like boarding the plane, driving over the bridge. They, they are the natural result of the faith we have in those objects. Just as our actions ought to be a natural result of our faith in Jesus. Like, is this making sense to everybody here? And so, for these last few minutes we have this morning, I want to take a look at kind of two contrasting faiths that James talks about here in chapter 2. The first one that James talks about is a faith that is dead. You know, in James 2.17, in the same way faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, it's dead. And this is important for us to understand. Like, if you recall last week, James addressed this to, he says, my brothers and sisters. He, James is writing this to believers. He's writing this to people who are in the faith. And, and he said, all right, our faith, if it's not accompanied by some kind of corresponding action, it's empty. It's dead. And so there's kind of two expressions that I think might help kind of illuminate what does that actually mean? What is, what is it that James is saying by the, a faith that is dead? And so the first one is this, a faith that is dead is one that emphasizes lip service, not lifestyle. Lip service, not lifestyle. Like it tends to be something that we talk about and not necessarily something that we are actually doing. Like we, we can talk a good game, but if we're not actually living it, if we're not actually doing it. This is one of the reasons why two weeks ago we did that prayer walk service right here in our neighborhood. That I don't, I don't want us to be a church that just talks a good game, talks about us being out and caring for and loving our, our neighborhood and our community, I, I want us to go and do it. I want us to, I want us to go and participate and see and, and interact with those who, who are around us. Like, that, like we're, we're, not, we're not just going to pay lip service to it, but no, it's going to be a lifestyle. It's going to be a part of who we are. But this can also be manifested in the way that we talk about the things in the past, the way that we talk about the good old days. Now, let me just say this, like, I'm, I'm probably the most romantic guy I know. I, no, I'm really not. You, you, can ask, you can ask, yeah. You didn't have to cover your eye, like, it, like. I don't know that you are, let me say. <laughs> but, but, but let's just say hypothetically. Like four years ago, I planned this amazing romantic night. Like, I mean, it was just, it was just perfect for, for Angel and I. Like, it like, just blew her mind. It, it was just an amazing, amazing night. And I'm still talking about that one night from four years ago, but I haven't done anything since. Like, I'm paying lip service to what was, but I'm not actually living it today. And I think that's part of when I'm talking about lip service versus lifestyle. All right, if, if we're living on, oh, remember that thing that I did in the past? Remember that thing that we used to do? But we're not doing anything about it now. It's not becoming a part of who we are now. That can be evidence of a faith that is empty, a faith that is dead. I, I think another way just kind of, of of sharing what that looks like is that a faith that is dead is one that shows leaves and not fruit leaves and not fruit. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, it, it means like, it looks good on the outside. Like, we try to look good on the outside to impress God or to impress others. We're trying to do the works. We're trying to do the actions, but our hearts aren't really in it. We're just kind of going through the motions. Like, when you think about the one thing that, that Jesus cursed, he cursed a fig tree. 
And if you read that passage, he cursed the fig tree because it was full of leaves, but it had no fruit on it. I, I don't know if you remember, actually, like right behind me here, right behind the baptismal tank, as you're driving in the driveway, there was a, there was a big tree that was right next to the, the driveway here. And it, it wasn't a fruit tree, but from the outside, like, it looked good. I mean, it, it was big, you know, the, the leaves grew on it. Like, I, I, it was a great, great tree. I love the shade that it provided. But the reason we had to take that tree down is because there was a large section in it that was totally hollow on the inside. Like, it, it was a danger. It, it would blow over eventually. And so even though it looked good from the outside, inside it was totally hollow, that there was nothing truly on the inside of it. And that's what I'm meaning when I'm talking about leaves and not fruit. It's a sign that we might have a, a dead or an empty faith. But in James 2.22, he paints a, James paints a different picture. All right, contrasting a faith that is dead, a faith that is empty with something completely, completely different. And he, and he talks about Abraham as, as, as an example. In verse 22, he says, you see that his faith, he's talking about Abraham. And, and again, James is writing to, uh, uh, to Jewish believers. So they would have been well acquainted. They knew the story of Abraham well. And you see that his faith, Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. So in, in talking about Abraham, he contrasts the faith that is dead with what I'm going to call a, a dynamic faith. One where our faith and our actions, as, as James uses the words, are, are actually working together. They're not, they're not separate, but they actually complement and they work together. Rather than us having a faith that is lip service and not lifestyle, or a faith that is leaves and not fruit. A dynamic faith, and you can write this down, a dynamic faith is one that steps out. A dynamic faith steps out. James, in verse 21, he says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Like, God told Abraham that that he was, he was going to take him to a land that he was going to show him. And, and Abraham, he packed up all of his stuff and all of his servants and his family, and he just trusted God and stepped out. And God led him to the promised land. And, and, and then once he was there, God promised Abraham, he said, all right, you're going to be the father of an incredible nation. That When you look up at night and you see the stars, your descendants are going to be more than the stars you see up in the sky. And for a long time, Abraham and, and his wife, Sarah, had no kids at all, and they finally had a son. And God says to him, all right, your one son that you have, I want you to go take him up on the mountain. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Like Abraham expressed his faith in God by stepping out and being willing to offer to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, now thankfully, ultimately, God spared Isaac. He didn't actually do it, but... Abraham, Abraham had a trust and a faith in God that was willing to step out and willing to do hard things even if it didn't make sense to him. A, a dynamic faith is one that is willing to, to take a, a step. Willing to do, like, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm willing to take that next step. That's what a dynamic faith does. When, when we possess a dynamic faith, like James said in verse 22, our faith and our actions, they actually work together. This is what I was talking about when I was talking about sitting in a chair, boarding 
an airplane driving over the bridge, that, that our faith is going to be expressed with some kind of corresponding action. Like if Abraham didn't truly trust God, didn't really have faith in him, he would not have allowed, he, he wouldn't have packed up all of his stuff and followed God to the promised land. He would not have been willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac. But the next thing about a dynamic faith, not only does it step out, but a dynamic faith speaks out. And to this, James, he, he switches gears again a little bit here. Instead of talking about Abraham, he talks about Rahab in verse 25. He says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And I want you to see the brilliance of James under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what, what he does right here. He, he's talking about, about the faith of Abraham, one of the patriarchs of, of the Jewish faith. Like the, he would be on the Mount Rushmore uh, of Israelite religious leaders. He, he's talking about the faith of Abraham, and then he switches and he talks about the faith of Rahab, a woman, which would have, like, in, in that time, what was, was totally out of bounds. A woman, a prostitute, a Gentile. He's talking about the dynamic faith of Abraham, but also the dynamic faith of a female Gentile prostitute. And J James is saying, all right, not only do the patriarchs of the faith, not only can they possess dynamic faith, but even a Gentile sinner like Rahab can and not only is she included in this chapter, but Rahab is also included in the lineage of Jesus. Like, I mean, that's, that's the kind of faith that Rahab had, and we're going to talk about that. But when, just, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar, just taking a step back, when, when the Israelites were getting ready to enter into the city of Jericho, they sent some spies in, in ahead just to kind of get a lay of the land, and, and two of the spies, they, they end up coming to Rahab's house, and Rahab lived in Jericho. She was not an Israelite. She was a Gentile. She was, she was a prostitute, and she actually ended up protecting them. She helped them. And if you read in, in Joshua chapter 2, I don't have time to go through it right now, but in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab spoke to the two spies, and, and she acknowledged that God was with them, that, he, that God was going to give them the land that they were currently in. Like, she, she was taking great risk in, in speaking out, but she was verbally affirming what it was that God was up to and what he was doing. And, and instead of speaking, I, I, like, thinking about the application for us in our lives today, instead of speaking death over our situations, things like, all right, things are never going to get any better. This marriage is over. This marriage is a disaster. I guess this is just my, my lot in life. I'm just a failure. I'm never going to get it right. Then maybe we need to start speaking words of life and words of faith over our situations and over ourselves and over our families. Say, all right, I trust that God is going to turn things around. Like a dynamic faith speaks out. I believe that God is going to heal our marriage. This is a struggle for me, but by God's grace, I am going to grow and I am going to get better in these areas. A dynamic faith steps out, but it also speaks out. It, it speaks what we believe. over the situations in our life. Like this, this is, even if I don't feel it in the moment, this is what I'm choosing to believe. And I'm going to speak it, I'm going to say it. And what I want to close with this morning 
is this final thought on dynamic faith. And that, it, that dynamic faith, it, it steps out, it speaks out, but it also works out. And this is what I mean by that. I'm not talking like going to the gym and, you know, or anything like that. But it's, it's, what I'm meaning by that is a dynamic faith is one that, that perseveres, that we work it out, that we trust the process and trust the journey. And think, thinking about the story of Rahab for just a moment here again, that the spies and her, they kind of concocted this plan that because Rahab was, was protecting them, because she was helping the, these Israelite spies, she said, the, the one thing I ask is would you, would you spare me and would you spare my household when God gives you this, this city, when God gives you the land, will you spare us? And, and so they, they came up. She was going to tie a scarlet cord and hang it outside her window. And that was going to be the sign to the Israelites when they came and invaded and took over Jericho, that when they saw that scarlet cord, they were going to spare Rahab and her house. And so she sent them on their way, and the Israelites came back. And and, and I can imagine, like, you, if you read the story in Joshua 2, it's like she could look out and she could see the Israelite army, the Israelite nation coming towards them. And you think about it, on day one, she's, like, getting ready for this big attack, and they march around the city. Like, they didn't, the spies didn't tell Rahab that part of it. And day two, they march around the city again. And day three and day four, like they're marching around the city again. And I can imagine Rahab, now this is purely my opinion, but I can imagine Rahab in this moment being like, oh, <laughs> all right, really? Like, here, here I spoke out. I was saying, all right, God, God is with you. He's going to deliver this city. He's going to deliver this land to you. Maybe my, maybe my faith in God was misplaced. Maybe, maybe my deliverance is not really coming. And it would be tempting to reach and pull that scarlet cord out of the window and pack it up, put it in a box. I guess maybe I was, I was wrong about this whole thing. But a dynamic faith, it, it works out. It perseveres, it hangs on. It trusts the process and it trusts the journey. That's what a dynamic faith does. And, and ultimately, that's what Rahab did. Her faith is one that persevered even when she was looking around and she didn't see any evidence to back up what it was that she was holding on to, what it was that she pro professed to believe. And James, he closes out chapter 2, verse 26. He says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I, and I think about, like, all of us in this room. I... I, if, if, I, if we sat down and we had a conversation, I would guess every one of us in this room, like we want to possess and have a dynamic faith. Like we, we don't want a faith that's empty. We don't want a faith that's dead. Like none of us just want to like go through the motions. But we have a desire for, for a dynamic faith. And like I said before, like our actions by no means do our actions save us at all. But when we have a, a true and a real and a genuine faith in God that, that's alive and growing, our actions are going to back it up. It's going to support it. And so, so we, don't, we don't prove our faith by the way that we live our lives, but the way that we live our lives demonstrates the faith that we do possess. They, they work together, as, as James said. 
our corresponding actions that support our faith that we have that, let me think of it this let me say it like this in the New Testament Paul talks about that we serve a God who can do greater things than we can either think or ask or imagine and when we possess a dynamic faith a faith that believes that, a faith that believes, no, we serve a miracle-working God. We serve a God that can and will do anything. How amazing that is. And connecting that about our faith and our deeds with what James was talking about at the beginning of this chapter, about not judging, about, about not showing favoritism. He said, no, no, the, the, if you possess faith, it's going to come out in the way that you, that you live your life, the way you treat other people the way you interact with God, the way you interact with those around us. And that we can trust. We can trust that God is with us. And, and, and we just praise him for that today, that we have a God that we can trust, that we can put our faith in. So would you bow your heads and, and allow me just to pray for us right now. That Lord, I, I just thank you, God, so much. Lord, for who you are. I thank you, God, for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives, Lord, that we've not earned, we've not deserved and God, still you've shown it to us. And, and Lord, I, I, I pray for us as a, as a church body and as a church family, Lord, that you would help every single one of us here. Lord, that we're not going to try to perform. We're not going to try to, we're not going to have, <laughs> demonstrate leaves instead of fruit. And we don't, we don't want to pay lip service instead of a lifestyle. But God, we want to possess that dynamic faith where, where our faith and our actions, our faith and our deeds, they work together. Because we trust you. There's not a list we need to check off. There's, there's not a prescribed things we need to do. But God, wherever we are on that continuum, on, on that journey with you, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to take whatever that next step is. That we would be willing to step out, to speak out, to work out. That, we, that our faith would be one that perseveres and stands the test of time. God, we do love you. We trust you. We affirm that. We speak that out today. And we are so incredibly grateful for you and what you're doing in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we love you so very much. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.